Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, you are in for a treat. So much so that you may want to go get out your Boy Scout manual if you got a Boy Scout manual. You may want to go and find one if you don't have one. If you never wore a Boy Scout, you know, this, uh, you're, you're going to learn some stuff today, I think, in, in some very unique ways. Now, no, I'm not interviewing somebody that's like the director of the Boy Scouts, although I wouldn't mind that if I had the chance to. Uh, I get to interview David Papoots, and he is the writer of Scout's Honor, which is a book that's on its way to me probably by next week, because I got it on my poll list. I was just like, this looks like such a cool thing. Uh, just Miss Jen was talking about it on her show when it, was, when it first popped in the store. So I was just like, wait, so the world has fallen into this crazy state where like the Bible of this world, so to speak, is the Boy Scout manual. Ooh, I gotta check that out. I gotta check that out. And so then I got the honor, the honor and privilege to be a part of the uh, EXP Expo, and so I got the chance to to see be, see David on panel talking about the book, and I was just like, dude, this is incredible. I got to talk to this dude. I got to pick this dude's brain. So here he is. So say hello to the people, David. Hi, um, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for the kind words uh, uh, about my work and uh, the EXP Expo. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm thrilled to chat with you uh, about Scouts Honor and some of my other work. Um, yeah, uh, you gave me a great introduction. I'm David Pepos. I'm the Ringo Award nominated writer of books like Spencer and Locke and Going to the Chapel over at Action Lab Comics. Uh, my recent Kickstarter, The OZ, uh, my upcoming book at Top Cow called Grand Theft Astro. And my recent book that has just been released uh, through Aftershock Comics this month, Scouts Honor. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I'm thrilled to be here, thrilled to chat about it. And thanks again for having me. Not a problem at all. I'm a little bit familiar with Action Lab. Uh, one of my favorite series I picked up from Action Lab was a, was a trade talk. I actually picked up the individual copies first, gave them away, bought the trade later, which is called Sweetie. Which, which book, I'm sorry? Sweetie? Oh, Sweetie. Yeah, that's yeah, a great I, book. Um, I bought that. I love the I art like, style in that book. I was like, wait, little black girl, superhero, has no real powers. Doesn't even really have a cop. She has a costume, but it's so like, you can so look at her and tell it's still her. <laughs> it was, it's, it's a fun book. Um, yeah. Having having been on, on the other side of the table um, at places like San Diego Comic-Con and New York Comic-Con, um, hanging out with the Action Lab crew, I've sold my fair share of copies of Sweetie. Um, it's a it's a fun book with a really just kind of um, distinct artistic point of view, and uh, so yeah, um, you got great taste. Yeah, so hopefully I'll talk to those guys someday. But today I'm talking to you, so we're yeah. going to do the stuff you're doing. So before we get into the stuff you're doing, though, there's always a thing. It's 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 not so much a tradition on the show. It's more like a it's more like a rite of passage for whatever um, I do interviews with people. Everybody is not born with the body of the macho man, Randy Savage, you know, and runs into a wrestling ring with really awesome theme music. And it's just like, oh, yeah, man, this is really wild. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm loving this. It's like guy. he was right here on this podcast. Perfect, <laughs> perfect likeness, perfect impression. I love it. Keep going. He's, 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 everybody's not born with that type of body and that type of Adonis and that charisma. Uh, but at the same time, not everybody is, you know, um, jaded by a dark past where their family gets killed and they become the Punisher. But everybody has an origin story. 
So I would like for you to share yours, talk about where you, maybe where you grew up, uh, different things you geeked out to as a kid, maybe, sure. you know, just, just your, your origins, if you will. Yeah. Um, yeah, my, my origin story, you know, there's a lot of people who come into comics, it seems inevitable and it seems uh, totally natural. Uh, I'm not one of them. I'm, my, my, my career trajectory is less of a straight line and more of a zigzag pattern. Okay. Um, I, I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri. Um, I'm third generation comics reader. My mother was a comics fan. My grandfather was a comics reader. Um, yeah, I, um, you know, having grown up in the Midwest, I never met anybody who had a creative career growing up. It was like, just as likely as walking on the moon as becoming a professional writer. Mm -hmm. um, when I was in college, it, it kind of had that, that itch at the back of my brain of sort of what's your astronaut job? Oh. And uh, working in the comics industry was that job. Okay. Um, but at the, at the same time, my, my Midwestern sensibilities uh, were kicking in uh, pretty hard. So I wound up working um, in journalism, but also kind of uh, dipping my toe in, in, in a lot of creative stuff in college. Um, I, I directed a few plays. I, uh, I was the president of the uh, Brandeis University Comic Book Club. So that's like nerd on, on nerd on nerd. Uh -huh. um, and uh, I did a few internships at, in some newsrooms, um, but I still held on to that astronaut dream. And uh, through, through a, a, a series of very lucky breaks and me knocking on the door for three years running, um, when I graduated college, I managed to uh, score an internship at DC Comics. Um, I worked on, on books like uh, Batman R.I.P., Final Crisis, Green Lantern, Secret Origin. Um, it was a really uh, life-changing experience for me. Um, the problem is, is it was during the recession. There, there yeah. were no jobs. Um, and so I wound up um, going back to my journalism roots. I, uh, I uh, wound up becoming a crime and state politics reporter uh, for the Berkshire Eagle in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, while moonlighting for uh, over at Newsarama. Uh, one of the uh, assistant editors I met at DC was an alum from Newsarama, and she had connected me with uh, her editor and, and my mentor, Troy, Troy Brownfield. Okay. So um, I kind of, I, I, I was writing a lot. I was working mornings at Newsarama, working the evening and night shift uh, at the Eagle, um, learning a lot, but um, still feeling like I wanted to do something in comics. Right. And I, I didn't know what. I thought at the time, maybe I still wanted to be an editor. And so at the time I wrote a short script every single day just to see like how to break down story and figure out how it works in conjunction with my work as a critic. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that was the really, I think, important learning experience for me, um, you know, because every short script I wrote, no matter how bad it was, I learned from it. Right. And uh, so what wound up happening was I, I left my job at the Eagle. I wound up working. Um, I, I wound up Getting, uh, going back to school, uh, Columbia University, I studied in their publishing program, um, somehow tripped and fell into a job at CBS television out of that. And oh uh, I'm sorry? Oh boy. Yeah, and uh, um, you know, that was a really important job just in terms of me figuring out like accessibility in terms of entertainment, uh, figuring mm -hmm. out like, you know, what beyond what is on the page can make your work more attractive and inviting to, to a, a wider audience. Um, I was still feeling pretty restless though. And um, I, you know, as, as I'm sure you have, have gotten being on your side of the table, sometimes you read comics and it, it's, it's the top of the wave and you're reading all this stuff and you're really digging it. And sometimes waves fall and crash and you're reading stuff and you're not vibing on much of it. 
Right. And at the time it kind of hit me that I, I was at a crossroads. I said, I need to change my relationship with comics or I need to leave entirely. Yeah. And so, um, you know, kind of on a whim, I started writing scripts again. And um, I wrote a first issue script that I really enjoyed. I decided to write an outline. I really enjoyed that. I uh, reached out to an artist on a lark to see maybe if somebody would draw it. And then I pitched it just to see what would happen. And uh, that was my breakout book, Spencer and Locke. Um, and uh, my, my, my editor and other mentor, Dave Dwanch, um, who uh, just announced his book at Dark Horse Jenny Zero yesterday, um, he emailed me about 20 minutes after I sent the pitch and said, how soon can you get this book done? Oh, wow. so what, what had gone from me kind of dipping my toe in the pool, suddenly I fell into the deep end. Um, and uh, yeah, it was one of those things. I, um, I, it took me a long time to give myself permission. And it wasn't even until the first volume of Spencer and Locke came out and the, 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 the last issue came out and I said, okay, people like this book. Yeah. But I suddenly, the gears started turning and I said, oh, maybe this is something I can do full time. Mm -hmm. And so um, I've been working uh, as a comics writer ever since. Um, I, I recently wrapped up my tenure at Newsarama uh, in August. Uh, I was their reviews editor for over a decade. Um, and uh, yeah, and since then, it's just been kind of taking as many swings as I can, um, trying to go you know, as, as big as I can, knowing that someday this is gonna be my last. So I'm gonna write every book like it's my last. Right. But it really does feel in a lot of ways, um, I can't believe I'm here. You know, this yeah. was something that as a kid, I never could have imagined or dreamed. And um, in a lot of ways, it feels like a, a leap of faith rewarded. Yeah. Um, every day, it's the best job I've ever had. It's the hardest job I've ever had. It's the most rewarding job I've ever had. Uh, but I always say it sure beats uh, digging ditches. Am I right? Yeah, I got you. I got you. So you mentioned the internship of DC. I want to kind of yeah. go back to that a little bit because I, I want people to understand in some cases, internships in some cases are paid internships. In other cases, they're not. Sure. So there's a paid internship or? So I started, I started as an unpaid intern and then wound up working as a tap uh, okay. for a few months. And um, yeah, it was, it was, it was one of those things that um, it was tough. I, I lucked out that I, I was also working um, a night shift uh, at, at, at a newspaper um, as a paid intern there. And so that was able to sort of get me lodging in New York City at right. the time. Um, but yeah, it was, you know, my, my time at DC, I, I can't overstate how important it was for me mm -hmm. in, in, my, in my path as a creator. Um, and even just kind of getting me to where I am today with Scout's Honor. Um, you know, first and foremost, like like my job, uh, you know, it was a lot of gopher work. It was uh, finding reference art in back issues. Um, it was uh, doing a lot of scanning of artwork. I was really fortunate. I got to scan some early pages from J.H. Uh, Williams III uh, for his uh, Detective Comics run with Greg Rucka that wow. had not that, that wasn't going to be announced for another year. That's good stuff. Um, it was. I, I did not. I didn't know until the book came out that I had been scanning history. Um, you know, uh, things like um, doing color notes or lettering passes, um, you know, uh, doing balloon layouts, which is, uh, I, can, I can say, was the thing I was the absolute worst at at my job. Um, I, to this day, am very, very bad at balloon placements. So, um, kids, just to let you know, the balloons are the sections in the comic books where people are talking in both cases. 
Yeah, I was extremely bad at it. Uh, I still am not great at it. Um, you know, uh, down to things like, you know, just shuttling things to the mailroom, uh, talking with our marketing division. Uh, you know, it was, it was, a, it was a wonderful experience. Um, I, you know, getting to look at the scripts and figure out how things are formatted. Mm-hmm. Um, it was also really important because um, I, I met my Scouts Honor editor there, uh, Mike Martz. He was the editor of the Batman line at the time. And I really owe Mike uh, my career in, in a big way. When I was at DC, um, my expectations changed in a big way. When I came there, the recession was pretty light. And so I was expecting all sorts of, of great things ahead of me. And by the time that my internship had ended, the economy was in shambles. There, there were no jobs. It was, it was kind enough uh, for them to, to, to keep me on even as a temp. And uh, I remember it was Mike who sat me down and said, nobody walks under the Yankees. And it really kind of opened my eyes in a big way. Um, you know, the fact that people, you know, they start off in the minor leagues and then they work their way up in the farm teams and then they work their way up in the mid-tier teams. And then they wind up on the Yankees, the Red Sox, the Cardinals. Right. You, know, you, you, you want to That's say a it. powerful piece of advice. Yeah. And it, it made it me realize this wasn't the, the end of my comics career. This was the first step. Yeah. And it made me realize also just, you know, what a why it widened my horizons in a big way um, in terms of my career ambitions. Because look, there are some people who say, my life goal is to write Batman or to write Spider-Man. And the thing that I always like to, to say is there are more professional NBA players than people who have written Spider-Man. You this know? is true. It is like that is that is you know getting into comics is hard enough. Laser focusing on one character like that is right. like you know that's that's a very small landing zone, and it's one that I think a lot of people set themselves up for failure. But even if you get in, that becomes a dream with an expiration date. Right. Um, you know, even you know, even somebody like Dan Slott, you know, who who Spider Man is his dream character. You know, you can only write it for so long. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I think it really widened my horizons in a big way. Yeah. And um, I think that advice really wound up um, staying with me, obviously, for, for a, a better part of a decade and a half. And uh, so I was really thrilled, um, you know, when Mike landed at Aftershock um, as their editor-in-chief. And uh, I knew that I wanted to do work w- with him. And so I'm, I, I was so thrilled to get to be able to work with him on Scouts Honor uh, with our lead editor, uh, Christina Harrington. Um, it felt like my career had come full circle in a big way. And I think it really kind of added that little bit of extra kick uh, yeah. for me to bring my A game because I knew that um, come hell or high water, I'm not going to let Mike Martz down. Okay. And, uh, so yeah, it, it, but that, that, that time at DC, so much of my career has been convincing myself that it was possible. And I think being at DC really kind of put a, a, a face on the comics industry for me. Right. And, uh, there are, there are, there's a whole industry of people that are making their living doing this. And um, for somebody who grew up in the Midwest, it, it, it certainly, it opened a, uh, not just a lot of doors professionally, but just, I think in terms of my own confidence. Yeah. And uh, really kind of, it was the snowball at the top of the mountain that uh, is, is started to pick up a, a little bit of steam. Yeah, yeah, I, I heard I heard it a lot, especially when I was growing up and in, in high school. 
you know, your, your goddess counselor would always come out and do the mass thing every year at the beginning of the year. And they'd always say, you know, you want to find a job where you don't feel like you have to work to do the job. Right. You want to feel like you're playing all the time. But you but but she never skirted away from the fact that you're going to have to do the work. Like, yeah, you don't get to just, you know. It's a job. And that's, I think, something that a lot of people, even myself included, um, you know, didn't didn't quite understand uh, when I was starting out is that, yeah, this is something that, you know, sometimes you just got to chain yourself to the desk and write a bunch of crappy pages that, you know, are going to go right in the trash. I consider that still time well spent because it just means that I've gotten, I've turned through the crappy pages. That means that's yeah. less crappy pages for me to turn through later. Right. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those things. I think there's a lot of people out there who uh, they have ideas. Um, writing any creative work. Yeah. Ideas are great. And that's the fun part, but follow through, follow yeah. through is what the job really is. How do you get those ideas into something manifested into something that people can read and or see? It's, it's the kind of career that is often self-generated and um, it's a lot, it's a lot to put on your shoulders. And I think there are, you know, they say everybody's got an idea for a book and um, I can't tell you even just, you know, I live in Los Angeles now and I can't tell you at least quarterly, I'll have a screenwriter message me and say, oh, hey, I've got this script that I, I can't get filmed. I was thinking about making it as a comic. Can you give me any advice? And usually I, they, they stop when I say, hey, uh, you know, do you have nine months and $15,000? Um, that usually gets them, they usually realize, oh, this is so much harder. They think, you know, well, a publisher, you know, so, some publisher will take it and they'll flip the bill. Yeah. And no, that's, that's, that's very rarely the case. Um, you know, I'm, I'm very fortunate that, um, you know, Scouts Honor, I, I had a publisher that actually paid me a page rate and paid uh, my artist a page rate, but that's the first time that's ever happened. I've had yeah. to self-finance, I've had to self-finance uh, my previous four books. And um, so, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a hard road. Um, you don't get into comics unless you love it. Right. Uh, but it's one of those things that, for me anyway, it's a very unique form of storytelling. It's a, a, a medium that's defined by its constraints. Yep. And for me, that kind of gives me, uh, that gives me something to play off of. That gives me something to bounce off of that lets me uh, really figure out the direction and tone of a book. And um, it's like a Rubik's cube. Um, it's a super fun challenge uh, because you know there is an answer, um, and it's just a matter of really kind of digging down deep until you find the right one. Yeah, and I know, like talking to a lot of different people who have done Kickstarters and Indiegogos and things like that. It's like I ask the question. I'll always say, you know, what are some things you tell people if they're interested in kickstarting a project? It's like, okay, well, you know, if you're the artist and the writer you've got to technically get yourself paid to cover your expenses. Yeah. You've got to, if you're hiring an artist or a writer, you've got to pay that person. Yeah. Because most people aren't going to do something like that for free. So you got to factor that in. Okay. You got to factor in time. Okay. Once you get the book first, day first, complete the project, have it at least 75%, to 85% complete before you even put it up there. That way you can start showing people things. Because yeah. the worst thing you can do to do that is to, have nothing available and be literally working on like page one but you've got a month to put this book out you know you're kickstarting yeah. it for a month yeah it's 
it's tough. I mean, I, I, uh, I was really fortunate. I, I did my first Kickstarter um, over the summer last year uh, with my book, The OZ. And um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's very different than uh, doing stuff in the direct market. Um, it's it, Kickstarter is its own separate planet with its own laws of physics. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, it's, I think in general comics, yeah, it's like, I don't approach an artist until I have a full outline and a first issue written. Yeah. I don't. And obviously I, I, with, with, with rare exception, I don't approach a publisher unless I've got it, it it used to be six pages in a cover, but now I've I've sort of become converted to the line of thinking. Until I have a first issue done, I'm not going to talk to a publisher. And yeah. I have heard kind of rumblings that some of the more competitive places, it they they want you to have three issues in the can yeah. before they even consider it. Um, you think about like the image model; they usually want a minimum of three to six. Yeah, it's it is it is it is a a, a huge challenge. The bar is only increasing every day. Um, but you know, I think that's, that's a good thing. Um, you know, I feel like you don't get into comics unless you really want it. And I, I, I feel like, uh, anything that inspires people to bring their A game, um, that's an industry I want to be a part of. Um, you know, and, and sure there are going to be books that are, that don't fly with people. There are going to be books that kind of, you know, explode on, on the landing strip. Um, but I think more often than not, we're, I think, really kind of the cutting edge. Um, we are some of the most, I think, innovative and creative storytelling on the planet and done, might I add, on a budget and at, at time frames that would Hollywood make, would make Hollywood drop their jaws. Um, <laughs> I think we're, we're really kind of the, some of the most rugged and scrappy storytellers out there. And so um, I, I, I feel uh, really honored to be a part of this industry. And uh, I, it, it really uh, inspires me every day to, to, to get up and write. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's talk about, before we talk about the books you've done pre-Scout's Honor, Yeah, let, let's do a little geek. So when yeah. you grew up, what kind of cartoons and stuff did you like? What kind of comic books and things like that were yeah. you into? So I I, uh, I came of age in the 90s. Um, so, uh, you know, Eric Larson and Mark Bagley on Spider-Man, um, you know, uh, Fatal Attractions era X-Men, um, uh, Death and Return of Superman, Nightfall, um, I spent way know, too much money on the Death and Return of Superman stuff. I'm love like, that. I, don't, I, love that. Don't even... I, I feel like Death and Return of Superman might have been the first trade I ever got. Um, Kingdom Come, um, you know, those yes. books really grabbed me. Uh, Devin Grayson's Batman Gotham Knights is a run that I, I think it's criminal that it's not always in trade, uh, the, that they've only put out one trade of it, I should say. Um, you know, that was a big seminal text for me um, and continues to be. Uh, Frank Miller's uh, Daredevil, The Man Without Fear. Um, that was kind of the book that made me realize real writers make these things. Yeah. Um, you know, and then kind of spinning off into Dark Knight Returns and Year One after that. Um, you know, as I got a little older, you know, things like Spawn, uh, Crimson, uh, some early Humberto Ramos. Oh books. my gosh, Crimson was so good. So dope. So uh, underrated. Yeah. Um, you know, it's like if you uh, want a good, if you want a good vampire story, like if you're, if you're one of those people that go. Uh, Twilight really wasn't it for me because Twilight was in the different demographic. I was like, okay, Crimson. Yeah. Um, you know, Grant Morrison's JLA, uh, uh, Mark Wade on The Flash, um, and his spinoff on Impulse. Um, yeah, know, that was too. more early Arber- Arberto Ramos yeah, art, too. Yeah, some early Ramos artwork. Um, you know, 
and, and then as I got into college, um, I was reading, uh, you know, Civil War uh, and 52 really kind of brought me back um, to the comics industry in a big way. Um, Why the Last Man? Um, you know, that's when I kind of realized, oh, there's like a creator-owned scene beyond superheroes. Yeah. And um, those were kind of the books that I was really jonesing over. Uh, oh, Grant Morrison's New X-Men. I forgot to add that. Um, you know, the ultimate line. Um, uh, those books I was really kind of jonesing on when I was knocking on the door for my internship. And um, once I got there, then it was just sort of like, oh, there's so much else out there. Um, and then once I got thrown into the deep end at Newsarama, that's kind of that. Then I started really learning the lay of the land a bit and starting to experiment with different publishers and, and different types of storytelling. Um, but yeah, it's just, you know, it comes in waves um, for sure. Um, but uh, I feel like every wave of enthusiasm I get, it, it deepens my love for the industry. Um, you know, things like Afterlife with Archie, for example, was I think the single book that pushed me into becoming a writer. Um, Jonathan Hickman's X-Men line. Um, that's the, that's, you know, Al Ewing and Immortal Hulk. Those are the, the, those are the two uh, writers in particular that I'm just like, how do I become you when I grow up? Yeah. Um, and I know that takes time and that takes research and that takes smarts. Um, but yeah, it's just, it, there's, there's a lot uh, and there's plenty of stuff I'm missing and forgetting. You know, uh, you know, Rick Remender on Punisher, Jeff Johns on Teen Titans and Green Lantern, um, you know, uh, even Chuck Dixon's run on Nightwing, um, you know, uh, JMS on Spider-Man uh, and Dan Slott for that matter. Um, you know, Tom King and Mr. Miracle. I could go on and on just looking at my library uh, behind the screen. Uh, but yeah, it's just uh, lots to geek out on. Yeah, I recently I recently picked up the trade, uh, the comic book shopping network. I've got a lot of my books from there because there's not a store close by me. And so, you know, and one day one of the guys was like, oh, I've got the trade for Tom King's, uh, Tom King's um, Mr. Miracle. I was like, okay, cool. And I think he might have said it was autographed, but I didn't hear that part. <laughs> but then, yeah. like, I was like, I want that trade because I've heard such good things about it from the writing standpoint yeah. and how the story is told. And, yeah. like, I, I, there's an expression that keeps being said. I believe it's like, our side is coming or something like that. That, it, that's just, just that is. permeate during the course of the thing. And I'm like, it felt like he was almost putting in an internal clock into... Yeah. The story because there'll be these moments where you'd be reading and I'm like, our side is coming. <laughs> what? What? Yeah. Yeah, it was. It, 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 it's 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 a singular work. Um, I feel really proud that uh, my breakout book, uh, Spencer and Locke, uh, was nominated in the Ringo Awards alongside Mr. Miracle and 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 me being nominated alongside Tom. Um, it was. Uh, I remember selling hand selling that book and telling people to vote for us and saying. I know we're not going to beat Mr. Miracle, but I'd love for us to be on the ballot. And, um, and we were uh, in, yeah. in every single category. Um, and so uh, it, was a, it was a huge honor. Um, and I, I, I think Tom is, uh, he's a singular voice in our generation and, and, and a real talent. Yeah. So since we rolled into that, let's get into it. Tell, yeah. us, tell us a little bit about Spencer and Locke. Sure. So uh, my first book, Spencer and Locke, the easy pitch for it is what if Calvin and Hobbes grew up in Sin City? Ooh. It's about a hard-boiled detective Locke who has to solve the murder of his childhood sweetheart alongside his partner in crime fighting, a seven-foot-tall imaginary blue panther named Spencer. 
And so- uh, Okay, now I'm, all, now I'm interested. It's, 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 a, it's a fun book. It's my baby. It was my first ever book um, with uh, artist George Santiago Jr., colors Jason Smith, uh, letter Colin Bell, and uh, variant covers by Monhouse and Joe Mulvey. And um, yeah, it's, it's sort of, I say it's a little true detective. It's a little fight club and it's a hundred percent love letter to uh, classic Bill Watterson, Frank Miller. And um, yeah, that book came up about, um, you know, I, people say, write what you know. And I think it's the, it's the single most misunderstood piece of advice in, 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 in create any sort of creation because people think, oh, that means I need to be a doctor to be able to write a medical drama or I need, I need to be a lawyer in order to write a legal drama. Um, you know, I have to have some sort of previous job to, bring to my writing and that's what they mean by write what you know is yeah sure if you've got that background experience you know apply it to your work but it's always it's really about what's the emotional experiences you've gone through and you know certain things are universal some things are specific just to you how do you filter that experience into a narrative um because obviously like you know george lucas did not go into space to write star wars you know right. not everyone yeah, no, yeah, no one is, no, not everyone's James Cameron where they have to, you know, submarine down right the abyss. Um, and uh, for me, when I thought about that, I was like, well, what do I know about anything? You know, uh, I've been working, I was working in PR and publicity for a television network. Um, I was like, the only thing I know anything about anything about is comics. And I thought at first, you know, oh, that's so limiting. And I realized, no, it doesn't have to be. Um, you know, I, I, I had been really into uh, mashup remixes at the time. And so, uh, like I said, Frank Miller was kind of the guy who made me realize that real writers made these things. And so I had said to myself, what's something in that vein? What's the weirdest thing I could throw up against classic Frank Miller? And I had thought of a bunch of different ideas, but they all felt like shock for shock value's sake. Um, you know, and I, that's not how I roll. Um, I feel like shock can get your foot in the door once. It does not build emotional investment. It does not build audience engagement. Right. Um, you know, I could I could say you know Sesame Street beats The Wire. You know, uh, you know Cookie Monster slinging crack, but like that doesn't that doesn't you know like that that that's good for a chuckle, but like nobody's gonna stay into that for more right. than one. That would be good for like a small insert in a panel of a book. Yeah. Yeah. A headline that says you know? Cookie Monsters. You know. Yeah, it, 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 now I say, does it feel like an SNL sketch or does it feel like a comic book? Um, and uh, it wasn't until I thought about Calvin and Hobbes that the light bulb went off. Um, I, I immediately had this image in my head of this hard-willed detective all beat up and he's grinning in the rain and he's holding a stuffed animal. And I was just thinking like, what makes a grown man still cling to these uh, security blankets of his youth? What yeah. is his home life like? What was his upbringing like? And that those questions became Spencer and Locke. Uh, I, I have a nine-year age gap between me and my younger siblings. So I remember what it was like to be an only child. Yeah, I made real life breathing friends. It was always something, as much as I loved Calvin and Hobbes, it was the one thing that always held me up was like, why does he need to like so vividly imagine a best friend? Why can't he just meet normal people like I did? And as an adult, looking back at that, I said, what if that's not a charming quirk? What if that's a symptom of a much darker pathology? And so we kind of reinterpreted that as uh, Locke, who's our, our Calvin analog, has had such a traumatic and abusive upbringing that he had to invent his own best friend in order to survive it. Yeah. And uh, it's, I wrote, that was my bucket list book. I, huh? I knew going in that, uh, 
you know, I was, I was making hamburger out of one of the most sacred cows in comics. Um, you know, Bill Watterson is a trailblazer and a pioneer and an innovator and as, as well earned and well-deserved every shred of praise he's ever gotten. Yes. Uh, I knew that there would be some people who got what we were doing and loved it. And some people who would hate it literally just based on high concept. Um, yeah. And I get it. Like, you know, it, 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 there, it, our book, whether we succeeded or failed, we were going to do it loudly. And um, thankfully, uh, the response was almost universally positive. Uh, I think I can count on one hand the number of people that, that publicly did not like that book, um, or at least that said something bad. <laughs> All right. Um, so, yeah, I, I uh, you know, it was really my evil can evil stunt jump into becoming a comics writer. Um, Love it. You know, it, it, we were we were uh, we were nominated for five Ringo Awards uh, for that book. Um, all four members of the core creative team were nominated, as well as the series as a whole. Um, we were optioned uh, for for uh, for film almost immediately. Um, like I think we announced we had, we had an announcement before right around when issue three dropped. Um, it was uh, a whirlwind. Um, it, it it was uh, I couldn't have picked. I couldn't have, have, have lucked into a better way of starting the industry. Um, and uh, as such, um, we, we wrote a sequel, uh, Spencer and Locke 2, where we kind of took the Calvin and Hobbes of it all and we said, what if we went across the funny pages? And so we did hard-boiled Calvin and Hobbes versus homicidal Beetle Bailey for our sequel. Oh, wow. So we kind of did uh, The Dark Knight meets Taxi Driver meets The Deer Hunter in a way um, with Roach Riley, who's kind of our big villain of, of, the, second, of, of the second volume. And, um, that book was also uh, recently nominated for a Ringo Award over the summer, um, and we're hard at work in Volume Three now. We're doing a, a Garfield-themed serial killer is picking off the Peanuts gang. Oh my and gosh! And Locke are the ones who are tasked with solving it, <laughs> and it's kind of our our exclamation point at the you know at the end of the sentence uh, for uh, as far as our series goes. It'll probably be the final word as as far as all things Spencer and Locke. Um, but yeah, it was a book that I. I can't, it changed my life. It changed my life in a big way. Um, everybody's first book is, is their hardest. And I feel like most people don't, it's not as loud when their first book comes out. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so I, I feel really fortunate that with my first book, people responded to it in the way that they did. And it really kind of started the foundation of what's been a really vocal and really loyal fan base. Yeah, now, I've got a commentary moment. Humor me for a second. I've got something in mind as you were talking about that whole idea of what makes Calvin not get real friends. Yeah. Thing. And I thought about it because I've read a lot of Calvin Hobbes. I, I'm looking at the treasury collection over here on my bookshelf. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've got some other stuff coming in the mail as well. But here's my thought on Calvin Hobbes. Yeah. If you're a kid whose imagination is seemingly limitless. Yeah. You see the world in a very different way. I mean, I mean, this kid is quoting Nietzsche at several points. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about yeah. super intellect. Yeah. And I don't I don't know that for him, he isolates more out of I don't know that other people are gonna understand what I know. It's it's uh, the thing that always got me about Calvin um, is 
you know, he's it's it's the chicken and the egg, you know, because he's he's always kind of been a prickly kind of guy, and he's yeah. always uh, he. I always say, you know, what's the Venn diagram between Frank Miller and Bill Watterson? And I always say it's the subversiveness of their senses of humor. Um, the other thing that really kind of stood out to me was seeing the volcanic temper of Calvin's mom. You see the way that Bill Watterson draws her and just the way that her face just, it just expands in rage. And that was the thing that kind of stuck with me was I was kind of like, you know, what if it's chicken and egg here? Like, what if, what if the mom isn't prickly or isn't volcanic because Calvin's prickly? What if Calvin's prickly because the mom was volcanic? Okay, and I think that, yeah, and, and, and um, yeah, I, I, I feel like, especially, you know, the way we've recontextualized it as, as sort of seeing Locke as an adult, and he keeps kind of flashing back to these, these pivotal, horrific moments of his upbringing. Um, yeah, you get why he's like grown up to be like rough around the edges and, and even kind of a jerk at times. Um, once you know somebody's story, you know, it's hard not to empathize yeah. with it. And I think that was the thing that I really, Spencer and Locke is a bleak high concept that I think is still a story about hope. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we start in a bleak spot and I think we take a couple of pretty bleak pit stops along the way, but seeing that Locke never gives up, that yeah. Locke is always kind of fighting for something better, um, you know, uh, and, and, and fighting for someone better, um, that, seeing somebody get beaten down and not break yeah. to refuse to give in. Um, I think we all have moments in our past that we don't like to think about. I think right. everybody's got some degree of trauma in their lives. And if they don't, they're, they're just lying to themselves. Or they've, I, or they've forgotten it. Or they've forgotten. It's so yeah. bad that they pushed it away. And so they yeah. don't, they're not able to recall it. And I think we, the question that Spencer and Locke really examines is, are we going to be defined by those scars? Or is there a way for us to transcend them or move past them or at least well, subdue them long enough to get the job done. Well, our circumstances dictate who we are or will we dictate who we are in the midst of our circumstances? Yeah, exactly that. And so, okay. um, uh, yeah, that book's, it's, it's always gonna be my baby. Um, you know, that I, I, uh, I, I still sell quite a bit of that book. Um, and uh, yeah, it's just, um, I feel fortunate, you know, okay. for that book. Um, and, and so uh, couldn't have been, I couldn't have found, I think, a better foundation for the rest of my career. Well, it's on my list now. So at some point, I don't know when, but at some point, I yeah. will be picking up a copy of it because you it, said Calvin it, Hobbes, that right there is like, okay. We're through Diamonds. So uh, your comic shop can order it. You can get it on Amazon or Comixology. Um, yeah, anywhere comics are sold, you can get the first two. I'll be talking to Miss Jen and get a copy. Uh, but yeah, like uh, there's a web series that somebody did a, a while back where it was imagining Calvin and Susie got married mm -hmm. and then Calvin and Susie had a kid yep. and then Calvin, the first issue is like, the kid is scared, the little girl is Bob scared. Yep, I, I, I know that series very well. We actually have a hands, nice little nod to it. In, yeah, in he hands her Hobbs and says, hey, this is something that got me through a wild childhood. Yep. You know, you take it. And so then it begins their adventures together. And so, and then another book that I recently picked up uh, is, is called Stuffed, where it's a little girl that has these stuffed animals. And so they can speak to each other and we can hear them, 
but she can't hear them. But of course, it's just like kind of these pictures of her life through their eyes almost. Like mm-hmm. the stuff animals are the ones kind of yeah. going like, you know, like at one point she just, <laughs> she's at soccer practice. And she just keeps running around going, hypersonic speed. And she's yeah. just running around kicking the soccer ball. And one of the kids is like, just because you say it doesn't mean it's true. <laughs> and she's like in the background going, you can't, I can't hear you. I'm sorry. I'm breaking the sound barrier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, there's something to be said about, you know, imagination and perception kind of coloring your reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, you know, sometimes it can be really fun and whimsical like that. And sometimes it can sort of lead to the ultimate unreliable narrator. But I, I find that that's a, that's a fun headspace to, to, to play in. Mm-hmm. So let's continue going down the track here. We, we, we've talked about Spencer and Locke. Now, what's the next big thing that you came out with? Yeah, um, my, 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 my uh, most recent book at Action Lab was a book called Going to the Chapel, um, okay. which I've, I've described as a Die Hard meets Wedding Crashers. Okay. Uh, it's about a bride, uh, a wealthy bride who on the day of her wedding is grappling with a serious case of cold feet. Uh, but before she can say anything, her wedding is taken over by a gang of Elvis themed bank robbers. Um, and so what was supposed to be a simple smash and grab, uh, the bride's unruly family winds up screwing up in a big way. And so uh, it, ter- it devolves into a full-blown hostage situation um, you know, with the police surrounding the chapel and this bride having to make a, a big decision. Uh, is she gonna go through with the wedding or is she gonna run off with these bank robbers? Um, and so she becomes oh an unlikely ringleader of her own hostage situation. Huh. Uh, it's it's a fun book. Um, uh, we were really lucky that um, comedian Patton Oswalt um, uh, kind of uh, discovered our book um, and really was very supportive. He shouted it from the rooftops um, on, on his Twitter feed uh, with every single issue. Um, he was gracious enough to give us a nice pull quote uh, for the book. Um, yeah, it, it was a, you know, coming off of two volumes of Spencer and Locke, I think going to the chapel is a really important book for me because um, I wanted people to know I, I, I can do more than just the dark and gritty reboot. Um, yeah. You know, I, I, uh, I can't tell you how many people said we, this is a fun like crime rom-com and we have no idea how to sell it. Um, <laughs> You know, and and that book that honestly kind of pushed me further. You know, out of spite, I said I knew this was a good idea. I want to run with it, and um, yeah, it, as a result, um, you know, the book was really well received. Um, a lot of people were like, "Oh, that guy isn't who I thought he was. Um, he's got range." And uh, a lot of people who wouldn't have checked out Spencer and Locke, or you know, who, or wouldn't have been for them, suddenly I have a book that's in a similar enough wheelhouse, but very different tonally, very different in terms of style. Um, people were really kind of jonesing for that. Okay. And um, yeah, that, the book was, was really well received. Um, it, was, it was also nominated for a Ringo Award last year. Um, and uh, it made me realize that kind of, any sort of, comics in general, it's tough because on the one hand, there are a bunch of, there are a lot of pitches that just aren't ready for prime time. It, it statistically, I would say 98% of everything that gets pitched is not ready for prime time, is not professional grade. Yeah. At the same time, as a creator, you want to make sure that if it does feel right, you stick to your guns. No yeah. matter how many people reject you, you just need one right yes. And um, going to the chapel was a reminder 
stick to your guns. Um, that like, I, I always try to come up with ideas that are accessible, that are not necessarily built for the diehard Wednesday warrior crowd, but something I could sell to somebody who doesn't read comics or somebody who has only the most cursory knowledge of comics. Um, you know, most people at a, of a certain age, they know who Calvin and Hobbes are, even if they've never read an issue of Spider-Man. Right. Uh, so I can, I can give them a copy of Spencer and Locke and they will get it. Um, you know, going to the chapel, have you ever been to a wedding? Have you ever been in love? Have you ever had a dysfunctional family? Um, then you will get this book. Um, and so, yeah, it, it was a, a real fun experience. Um, it was sort of very much uh, counter-programming to the direct market. And I think that's, there, there was not another book out there like it. I don't think there has been another book out there like it. And uh, right. I think that's, that's the reason why that book has been as successful as it was. And I'm just looking forward to once it's safe again, uh, post uh, pandemic, um, the trade for that book came out only, uh, I think about a month before everything shut down. Okay. And so I'm really looking forward to doing the convention scene again and uh, really uh, hand selling this book to, to people who might not have gotten a chance to check out the singles. Right. That sounds really good. Now you did a second book for Action Lab as well, correct? After this one? Um, so I, well, I did two volumes of Spencer and Locke and then I did uh, Going to the Chapel. And then um, most recently I did a Kickstarter that I self-published, um, uh, my book called The OZ. The OZ, tell, kind of, tell us, talk about that. Yeah, OZ, uh, the OZ is like, what if the Hurt Locker took place in The Wizard of Oz? Okay. Uh, our story follows Dorothy Gale's granddaughter. who's oh. a, a disillusioned Iraq war veteran who finds herself stranded in the war-torn land of Oz. And as we find out, her grandmother, the original Dorothy Gale, um, having killed two wicked witches and convinced the Wizard of Oz to leave in like a week and then splits. And so the resulting power vacuum has turned Oz into something not unlike Baghdad. Oh, and wow. so this new Dorothy is going to have to navigate these factions led by her grandmother's former friends uh, if she hopes to survive the occupied zone. So the Cowardly Lion, the Tin Man. Yep. And uh, um, Scarecrow. Yeah. Scarecrow. Um, wow. And so, uh, yeah, so so the Occupied Zone, uh, the OZ, um, it's, uh, I could have been more blown away to the response of that book. Um, the way the OZ came about, um, it was one of the first ideas I came up with after the first volume of Spencer and Locke. I came up with Spencer and Locke too, going to the chapel and the OZ. Those were my three ideas spinning off my first book. And um, the OZ had a lot of sort of false starts to it. Um, we, uh, I remember there was a publisher that was really excited about the pitch. Um, I had come and I'd come up with a full outline. Uh, I went all the way up the flagpole and we went head to head with another fantasy book that was similar enough in tone by a much more established art, uh, writer, was uh, longer in length to the book. And so I get why that publisher wound up, you know, not being able to, to run with us at the last. Right, time. right, right, right. And, and, but the thing that happened that I think, was really important and it goes if there's anything about this conversation that we're having today that should stand out you'd be shocked at how much small interactions wind up having big dividends down the road mm -hmm. the editor that i had been speaking with who had loved the oz told me don't give up on this book um and that's something i've never had an editor do before right uh, or, or since but that vote of confidence saying this wasn't an indictment on you or the book. This was literally just bad timing. Yeah. Um, 
that gave me the grit to push forward with it. And so I, I, I reached out to artist Ruben Rojas, uh, colorist Whitney Kogar, letter DC Hopkins, and we, we put some pages together. And as Ruben's art started coming in, I said, this book is going to get made. I told the team, come hell or high water, I will get this book made. Keep mm-hmm. going. I'll pay for it out of pocket. Um, what wound up happening was, uh, you know, last year during the pandemic, Diamond had its temporary shutdown. And the whole industry, I think, I, I, if anybody in the industry was, did not think about how to pivot, they're, they're dumb or lying. Um, you know, publishers that had been ex- expressing interest in the OZ, suddenly kind of the, the, the acquisitions pipeline shrunk. Um, a lot of people were already dragging their heels just because people, you know, attention spans are limited. Fire's got to get put out. If you're not the fire, you don't get put out. Um, meanwhile, I've been thinking about doing Kickstarter for a long time. Um, I'm friendly with a lot of Kickstarter success stories, people like Charlie Stickney from White Ash, Pat Shan from Destiny New York, uh, Russell Nahelty with his laundry list of books, uh, Ryland Grant, who just uh, finished a book called The Peacekeepers. Um, they'd all been saying, you really need to do a Kickstarter. And it was Charlie that pushed me over, over the net. He said, look, there's a diaspora of readership out there. There's the Wednesday Warriors, the people that go to their comic shop every Wednesday. And I love those people. They're, you know, they're the backbone of the industry. But there's some people that will never step foot in a comic shop. There's some right. people that uh, only buy books at cons. There's some people that only buy books on Amazon. Some people that only uh, go on Webtoons. Some people that only buy books at cons. And some people that only buy their books on crowdfunding. Yeah. On Kickstarter. And so I realized there was a whole demographic of readership that I had been doing that I had done no outreach to. Right. And so uh, I realized with the OZ, I could solve one problem with another. I could give the OZ a home and I could introduce myself to the Kickstarter community with our absolute A game. And, um, you know, nobody really, pre- nothing can prepare you for your first Kickstarter. I mean, I was, I think I had about as much prep as I could with having such great resources of knowing people like Charlie and Pat and Russell and Ryland, who I could call up any hour of the day to say, hey, what do you think about this? Um, you think, how do I hit my minimum goal in 30 days? Nobody tells you what happens when you hit that goal in two hours. Um, we, wow. we wound up breaking, uh, once you include backer kit in the mix, we crossed $50,000 for our first issue. Um, I was shocked, you know? Um, but I feel like, again, the leap of faith rewarded, um, you know? I've believed in this project. I've believed in it for years. And seeing that we had over 1,250 people all agree to throw in and all say, we believe in this project, sight unseen. Um, yeah, it was huge. It was huge. Uh, and so I, uh, I, I, I couldn't be more thrilled to the, to the, to the response to that book. Um, we are hard at work on the second issue now. Um, all right. I should say our, our double-sized second installment. Um, uh, it's, the whole series has been written. We are just in the process of getting it drawn now. Huh? Um, but yeah, it's, I just, uh, you know, it felt like, like not just learning a new sport, but being on a totally different planet and kind of having to really figure it out on the fly, figuring out how can we keep adding value to the book without blowing up our shipping apparatus right. uh, and not blowing up the, the time frame on the book. And um, I'm really proud that, uh, you know, I fulfilled uh, uh, 1,250 plus backers out of my two bedroom 
uh, by hand on time. <laughs> Um, and, I love and with it. Only with only sort of uh, 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 the most minor of, of of hiccups on a very small percentage of of of, of packages, um, yeah, it was a real confidence booster for me. You know, I, I having worked in publicity and worked in comics journalism, I know the outreach side of things pretty well, and I feel like I've I've gotten my feet under me creatively in the production of a book. But I didn't know how to print a book. I don't know how to ship. I didn't know how to ship a book. I didn't know, you know, figuring out production specs for stuff. Right. Now I do. Now the OZ has kind of been proof positive that if I don't have to wait for permission anymore, you know, if I feel strongly about an idea, I don't have to wait for a publisher to give me the green light. Mm-hmm. I can just put the book out. Okay. And thanks to, you know, the really loyal fan base that I've had, that I've I've been so lucky to enjoy with my previous books. Um, You know, I I know that we have a core of people that will stick around. Um, And I feel like uh, so far the the response to the OZ has been uh, overwhelmingly positive. Um, I'm so excited because the the, the best is yet to come. Yeah, definitely. Um, And so, yeah, we'll be be returning to Kickstarter. Uh, I'm hoping in March, um, you know, depending on, on how far along we are with, with the, with the art. Um, but yeah, it's just, uh, we, we've got some, some, some fun stuff planned and, uh, I, I'm so grateful to everybody, uh, uh, both, uh, longtime fans and newcomers alike, uh, for making that book a reality. Yeah. I'm going to have to pick your brain at some point because I want to do a small, like Indiegogo to kind of start, sure. I like to do like just an art book. And just be like, you know, I, there's no story here. It's just me drawing a bunch of stuff that you either will love or hate from comics and video <laughs> games and such. Sure. I want to do something to get established myself into that world and then eventually start publishing some pencil ninja type stories exclusively through uh, Indiegogo and writing these hard covers and really awesome, like full color things and all sorts of stuff like that. Yeah. You know, it's it's uh, it's one of those things. It's interesting because I feel like you would think, you know, crowdfunding, you know, same balloon. And I, I have found, uh, you know, both from my own experience and what I've been told anecdotally, that, you know, Kickstarter and Indiegogo are two very different ecosystems uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, and, you know, one of them being is that Kickstarter has the human touch to it. They have that team. And so... It, 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 it's, it's a little bit of higher risk, higher reward, um, you know, by having that timetable, by saying I, there are 30 days to get this book. Um, I think that drives up, you know, a lot of, a lot of sales. Um, Kickstarter also, it's, you know, they have their ecosystem where they're constantly, if you buy one comic, they're constantly pushing other comics because of course that's right. their business model. They want as many projects to succeed as possible so they can get mm-hmm. their cut. Whereas um, Indiegogo, from from what I've been told, you know, a lot of it's very automated, and so it's very easy to kind of fall in the cracks. It's very easy, you know, by not having the timetable for, you know, there's the 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 the, the less sense of urgency to 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 get your this your stuff out, um, and that's on top of, you know, I, I at risk of getting too political on, on, on your podcast, um, you know, Kickstarter is sort of seen as if you're not Comicsgate you go to Kickstarter, whereas Indiegogo is kind of a place where there's a lot of Kickstarter projects. Um, that's not a group that I, I 
care to affiliate with. Oh, um, fair I, enough, yeah. fair enough. I've, I've, I've had, I've had a lot of friends on the receiving end of, of, of those campaigns. Um, but uh, so it's, it's one of those things that it's like, those are all things that if you weren't really steeped in the industry, you would have no idea. Yeah. And you would have no idea that oftentimes the platform that you choose has its own unique pros and cons and okay. can often self-select your own customers as a result. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's tough. And, you know, I consider myself, I keep saying the word fortunate and I know it's, I say it on repeat, but it's cause I mean it in that a lot of people starting off their career don't have 10 years in the comics journalism trenches. They don't have the better part of a year actually working in an office of a major publisher. Right. And um, I feel like it took me, some people say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm almost 35. And they say, oh, you're, wow, you, you seem old <laughs> for starting out in the industry. And I, I said, you know, I'm glad though. I, I don't think if I had done this in my twenties, I would have been ready for it. Right. Um, I wouldn't have known. I, 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 uh, I wouldn't have had the, the, the skills and the lay of the land to be able to navigate this. And so, um, yeah, I, I, I feel like, uh, so never like, like anybody who's, who's, who's hearing anything that I'm saying and it's like, oh, I didn't know that. Like, don't feel dumb. Like it's, it's one of those things. I feel like um, if anything, I feel like my, my, my knowledge base has been pretty hard fought uh, over a long period of time. And that's why I like doing these interviews so much is because if I can help one person sort of avoid a, a, a landmine, um, or sort of have, have one pe person not make some of the, the mistakes that I've made, um, then it's, it's, it's time well spent, I think. Yeah, yeah, I've got you. I mean, well, we've talked about the Comics Gate fiasco for a while. I think we, we talked kind of about the whole daily issue that happened yeah. last year, and yeah. that really broke my heart because I remember the rare instance of, you know, uh, when he had announced his, his dog had passed away, you know, I had messaged him just not messaged him but just commented on the post that says you know i'm really sorry for your loss yeah. you know i hope and pray you know if you need to talk i mean i've never lost a pet but i've lost yeah. before if you ever need to talk with somebody i know you don't me don't know me from adam but i'm my ear is available and he responded back well, you know i really appreciate your sentiment thank you so much you know for that and then to hear what happened kind of after that result and i was just like man that would be hard there's, 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 you know, I, we're, we're living in a moment right now where I feel like hindsight is 2020. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff that, you know, reading, for example, Green Lantern Rebirth, I don't think you would have associated that book with, you know, something that would then turn into a harassment campaign, you know? Um, and I think, I think we're living in, a, in the same in the same world right now, you know, we're talking on inauguration day and seeing kind of where that snowball started and where it turned up and where then that snowball, you know, crushed, you know, 400,000 people. Um, there's no way people could, could have seen that coming years and years and years ago. You could have said things are going to be bad, yeah. but you know, you, you never know sort of the magnitude of the damage. Um, often that is kind of tragically that, that comes in the rear view um but uh yeah not to not to to to, to talk too much about about that particular group because again i don't i don't think they're worth the the the, the airtime or, or or the oxygen um but uh 
it's one of those things I think philosophically my 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 creative streak and the way that I approach my books has been informed a little bit and probably not the way that that group would like because I'm always thinking about how can we invite more people to the table yeah uh, how can we you know look I've looked in the mirror. I'm a straight white guy uh, living in, in Hollywood. I'm Jewish, but like, you know, nobody's going to know that just by looking at me. Right. Um, I've, I've been really lucky that, uh, you know, the whole comics industry has been catered to me for decades. The fact that, you know, somebody that like Dwayne McDuffie, who I remember his run on Justice League, and I remember how angry people got, you know, uh, by the fact that he dared have three minority characters in the justice league right because of the unwritten rule that if you had three minorities on a team at one point it would became a black book which but, I'm like, was, but that doesn't even make sense but he was here's the thing he was ahead of his time and i think he still has not gotten the kind of um the the praise that that, that he deserves even posthumously i think so often you hear and i've heard it with scouts honor that, oh, you know, we don't want politics in our books. And my, my thinking is, first off, um, have you read Captain America? Have you read the X-Men? Have you read Superman? The, the politics are baked in. But even beyond that, oftentimes what people, the, the, this, this group is really railing against is not the politics of it all. It's, it's, it's any sort of cultural representation. I feel like, like I said, straight white, this writer i can't write a story about the lgbtq experience that is authentic i can't write a story about the african-american experience that is authentic what i can do is 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 ask myself all right you know is my story gonna veer an unintentional stereotype if i lead it with a person of color if i lead it with a woman if i lead it with a member of the lgbtq community I'm going to be honest, it is low impact on me. But by having that representation in my in my characters, by working with diverse creators, um, that is something that sort of, it's a baby step in the right direction. And it's going to take the whole industry to make these baby steps. But it's sort of, you know, I, I consider it makes creative sense. To, to, to shake up the way that the books have been looking for the last few decades. I think it makes uh, business sense to reach out uh, to, to diverse readers who have not been catered to. But most importantly, it makes moral sense. Um, it makes existential sense uh, for a sustainable in industry. And so I, I feel like um, that's something I'm always asking myself, you know, is how can we invite more people to the table? How can we invite the direct market and the Kickstarter community to the same table and have them break bread. How can I have more diverse characters in my work to make sure that, you know, it's not just one very particular subgroup of a subgroup. Right. Um, and so that's something that I think we all should be considering in our work. Um, and on top of having more diverse creators telling their stories, but also having the opportunity to tell stories that are not specific to their experience. Right. I know Christopher Priest talked a, a lot about that, where, you know, uh, when he started writing uh, Deathstroke, 
is that he was tired of, you know, constantly being offered, you know, black lightning. Right. Um, and so look, I'm one small indie creator. Like, obviously I'm not going to be, you know, the guy who's changing the industry, but I can at least, you know, I can walk the walk mm-hmm. um, as best I can. And um, I think that was something that going back to Spencer and Locke, we, you know, uh, George Santiago Jr. And I talked about that. It was ultimately something we decided not to do with that book because saying, you know, should Detective Locke be a character of color, having the story be about child abuse and mental illness in the urban area, I did not want that story to then be turned into, oh, well, he's, he is abused because he is a character of color. Right. Um, that, that, would, that would totally go entirely against the grain of what the story we're trying to tell. But things like going to the chapel, where that is a story, a female-led story with two romantic leads of color. Um, you know, I felt like, oh, we don't see a lot of sexy Asian dreamboat guys in, in action movies. You know, this was before Crazy Rich Asians came out. We still don't really see it. Or often. Shang-Chi when it comes out. Yeah, you know, um, um, you know, I was like, why not? You know, um, and so, yeah, I, I certainly don't have a silver bullet for, for, for anything, but I, I do think that it's our, it's, it's our responsibility, yeah. um, especially for, for straight white male creators um, to, to at least have some diversity in their characters, in their teams, um, just to sort of, you know, make, make the industry a little bit more welcoming and accessible and equitable for everybody. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of, uh, you mentioned Dwayne McDuffie, so I got to go into this moment. So I think it was Warren Ellis that was writing Cage, or Luke Cage. And of course, you know. Oh, it's Azarello. It's Azarello. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah. Uh, Brian Azarello. And so he kind of comes into this meeting and kind of storms in, throws the book out and says, who wrote this? Mm-hmm. And they're like, like, you know, they told him, it's just like, have you read it? Yeah. It's like, well, it's like, it sounds like 70s exploitation in a book yeah. written in the 90s. Why are we doing this? Yep. And it's, it's like, and so they interviewed so later on, I think there was a separate interview with Brian Azzarello that asked that question. It's like, well, I get my black culture from watching black exploitation films in England, you know? And yeah, that's like that, that like exactly. Like that's that's sort of it's the thing I'm always I'm always trying to work overtime to avoid is yeah. that like yeah, like nobody should be hiring me to write Luke Cage, you know? <laughs> nobody should be hiring me to spearhead Black Panther. Um, you know, it, 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 it's, uh, you know, now if somebody wanted me to write an Avengers book, like, yeah, I'm going to make sure to go to, to work overtime to be like, okay, like how do we keep this team from looking like just seven white guys? Yeah. You know? um, or the Justice League or what have you. Um you know, I was just thinking. You know, the the other day, um, there was a there was a Twitter thread that I, I don't want to give too much oxygen to, but you know, talking about you know the the X Men as um, you know a, a failed analog for for disenfranchised people, and there the the actual discussion. I would disagree with that, but go ahead. Yeah, the, the actual discussion, I I did not. The the way that the discussion was framed, I was kind of like, ooh, I I don't know if I can follow you on this journey. Whereas if somebody just said, you know, the, the X-Men are limited as an analog for disenfranchised people because they've had more blue people on the team than they've had black people or Jewish people 
or Muslim right. people or, or, or members of the LGBTQ community. You could make that argument real, real fast. Um, and and uh, as opposed to the kind of the way the thread devolved. Um, I, uh, that's, that's, you know, that Azarello book that you're talking about, that's exactly sort of like, ooh, you know, yeah. there, there, there might've been like the, the, the speck of a good intention there. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but the execution just like so thoroughly. And Dwayne like, McDuffie had a quote that came out of that because he, he came back later, I think, and he pitched a book called, I think it was called Teenage Negro Skateboard Riders or something like that, where he basically pitched this whole thing because it was like 20% of the black characters we have in our Marvel Comics ride skateboards. Yeah. Doesn't work in the actual demographic because that's not something we do. <laughs> Yeah, that was uh, that was I believe that was that was Dwayne as an assistant editor because there were books coming out. There was it was like Night Thrasher had come Night out. Night Thrasher, Rocket Racer, uh, Rocket Racer. Others. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it's just I Dwayne was working on Justice League when I was at DC, mm -hmm. and um, I distinctly remember you know doing a lot of color notes on 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 his on his books and uh, and uh, balloon passes, lettering passes on on, on his books and. Um, Looking back on it, I'm just like, oh, that guy was so far ahead of the curve. Um, and it's just, it's something that I'm always kind of constantly thinking about is how do I, in the year 2019, 2020, 2021, you know, how, how, how can I make my book not look like just a book from the 90s? Right. You know? um, and, and it's it's something that, uh, you know, I, I try to work pretty hard on. Um, it's definitely it's definitely a conversation that, for sure, shapes Scout's honor in a big way, um, and and is something that uh, I will continue to kind of keep building on and keep interrogating and keep trying to to develop uh, through the course of my career. So let's roll into Scout's honor. Yeah. Uh, now before we roll into Scout's honor, I do have a question. I wasn't, but I'm gonna ask you this: Were you a Boy Scout yourself? My brothers were. My younger brothers were. Okay. And that was kind of the kernel of how Scout's Honor came to be. Um, like I said before, there's a nine-year age gap between me and my younger siblings. My younger siblings are triplets. And oh, so, wow. Uh, you know, I, I feel a little like the, the dinosaur before the meteor hit, um, as far as my childhood memories are concerned. Um, I, for me, you know, I was kind of the, 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 the crash test dummy of children. Uh, <laughs> I, was the, I, was the, I was the learning experience for my parents. Whereas uh, my siblings, uh, you know, my parents quickly learned throw them in extracurricular activities, anything to sort of keep them occupied with structure and out of our, out of our hands. Right. And so um, uh, watching my younger brothers do the scouts for a little while, um, you know, on the inside, it was all about camaraderie and learning practical skills and hanging out with your boys. But on the outside, you know, you see all the pageantry and you see the costumes and you see the, the, the bylaws and the mottos and you don't have to squint too hard for it to look like a cult. And that became the basis of Scout's Honor. For those who haven't picked up the book, it's uh, about a, a cult that has risen up from the ashes of a nuclear war and their Bible is an old Boy Scout manual. Um, and our story follows Kit, who is a, a young initiate who really represents the best and the brightest of the Ranger Scouts of America. There's just one twist. This has been a, a, a patriarchal, hyper-masculine survivalist cult that only lets men serve. And so Kit has had to conceal her identity as a woman in order to pursue her calling as a ranger scout. 
Uh, the problem is this true believer is going to make a pretty chilling discovery dating all the way back to the ranger sketch creation. And so she's going to find herself losing her religion. Uh, she embarks on a particularly dangerous quest for the truth. Okay. I've described the book as kind of Mad Max meets Mulan, but there's hints of the Handmaid's Tale, the Hunger Games, even Planet of the Apes uh, thrown in for good measure. Um, but yeah, so much of that book um, came from those kinds of conversations that we were talking about earlier. Um, when I first pitched this book to Aftershock, uh, you know, we just had the logline. Um, this was Aftershock is one of the rare publishers like Boom that they want to really be hands-on with the development of the book just as much as you. And so um, I didn't need to have a full creative team in store. They, they were familiar with my work. Mike at uh, Martz, one of my editors, obviously knew me since college. Um, so they said, send us a few log lines. We'll see if we like anything. Took a few passes. Um, I'm not gonna lie. It, it, you know, I think Scott's Honor was the third time I pitched Aftershock. So it takes time to find the right thing that speaks to your voice and fits the publisher's needs. Yep. Um, but uh, they immediately keyed in and they're like, oh, post-apocalyptic Boy Scout cult, go on. And I realized as soon as they said, go on, I was like, oh crap, there's a problem with this pitch. How in the year um, I pitched it in 2019, how in 2019 am I going to get away with an all male book? You know, like it just, it, it's not going to work. Right. And I realized I could, I could lean into that. Like, yeah, that is weird. Um, you know, and have the character be a woman having to navigate these kind of uh, uh, hyper strict, rigid mold of, 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 of toxic masculinity. Um, and uh, yeah, as the book kind of went on, it became surprisingly autobiographical. Um, you know, I didn't grow up in the apocalypse and I didn't grow up in a cult, but I did grow up in a very conservative, uh, both politically and religiously um, Jewish household in Missouri. And it wasn't until I left home that I realized that there were a lot of things that I had been raised to believe is ironclad that didn't actually stand up to scrutiny, that weren't actually true in the harsh light of day. And I remember how disorienting that was. But at the same time, recalibrating my compass was what started my own political and spiritual reawakening. Okay. I'm still a practicing Jew. Um, I feel like my liberalism has come well-earned at this point. Um, but I remember just how challenging it was to, to have that open mind and say, oh, I'm confronted with new facts and this is going to really change my worldview on things. Um, and so that really got baked into Kit's journey. In a big Can way. I ask what some of those things were, just out of curiosity? Yeah, sure. Well, so for example, I, I was raised, I was raised in, in, in a, what was then considered a Republican household um, for a Republican party that I don't think exists anymore. You know, uh, a party of small government and, and, uh, and fiscal responsibility and, you know, staying out of people's bedrooms and wombs um, and, and religious practices. I don't think that's the way that the modern GOP has, has come anymore. Okay. Um, you know, I was, I was raised, you know, I, I still believe, you know, I'm, I'm pro-choice, pro-gun control, uh, pro having a social safety net because, you know, I don't want people to be one bad day away or one illness away from living on the streets. Um, you know, and as I kind of got older, realizing like, oh, you know, maybe that sort of libertarian kind of philosophy, it's a math equation that doesn't really add up. Um, you know, if you want to have social programs, you have to pay for social programs. You have to have co uh, companies and corporations pay their taxes. 
um, you know, trickle down, having worked for one of the biggest corporations on the planet, I can tell you trickle down didn't work for me. Um, you know, those sorts of things. I remember distinctly uh, my freshman year of college, somebody sitting me down um, being like, so you're pro-choice, right? I was like, yeah. They're like, you're pro-gun control. Like, yeah, pro-social safety net. Yeah, they're like, you're a Democrat. Uh, and being like, oh, what? What? Like, I, having grown up, that would have been like the most verboten thing I could have been told. Um, and, you know, having having survived the recession and now the pandemic and having, uh, you know, during my time in, in, in interning in journalism, having spent some time in some fairly conservative leaning outlets and realizing like the spin that went into it. Um, yeah, like those were all things that really ran counter to the way I was raised. Um, I, I, I laugh now because I've sort of considered the pinko comedy of my family. Um, but, and I don't even think I'm that far, I'm, I'm, I'm that far to the left. Um, you know, I, uh, I think that's sort of, everybody has that. I think every, that's part of coming of age, um, sort of grappling with who, where you stand politically, but also where you stand spiritually. Um, yeah. like, like I said, um, I was raised in a, in, a, in a Jewish household and I'm still a practicing Jew, but anybody who's, who's not Jewish watching this, um, Judaism has a very wide spectrum of interpretation and, and practice and belief. You go anywhere from sort of secular cultural Jews who sort of just see it as purely genetic, um, as sort of, you know, born Jewish to reform Judaism, to sort of conservative Judaism, to Orthodox, to the, 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 the Hasid community, um, uh, or the Hasidic community, I should say. Um, there's a wide spectrum. Um, it's a religion built on literary critique. You have five different rabbis interpreting the same passage and giving 10 different interpretations. And then we keep all those interpretations in the margins. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's certainly affected who I am as a reviewer and as a critic and as a writer. But at the same time, my spiritual practice and journey is very different than that of my parents, which is very different than that of their parents. Um, you know, some, one, of the, one of the elements of that is um, my partner was raised Catholic. You know, um, in that regard, I guess I'm a trailblazer in my family is that I, you know, uh, I was the first person to have a, a long-term relationship with somebody who wasn't Jewish. Um, she, the reason she left the church was because of the Catholic priest scandals. You know, yeah. she had said, she felt so disillusioned. She said, how can I be a member of this organization that has swept so many horrific things under the rug? Um, and those two journeys kind of came together to form kids. Um, the backbone of Scouts Honor in a lot of ways is how does Kit maintain her spiritual and ethical values while navigating a human institution that is flawed and maybe corrupt and maybe sinister and maybe hiding things. Um, the book's also, uh, you know, uh, it's about secrets, um, you know, and how oppressive they can be and kind of how blinding it can be when you've sort of had the veil removed. Um, it's also about toxic masculinity, um, you know, both in the case of Kit, um, you know, what's it like for a woman to navigate this hyper patriarchal cult, but also uh, as we'll find on later on, what does that do for members of the LGBTQ community? Um, you know, it, it, when you strip the whole book down, you take away the post-apocalyptic side and you take away the Boy Scout imagery. It's really about a small conservative town and what happens, you know, for people who fit the mold, that's great. They're living their life. 
But how do people who don't fit that mold navigate that world? A lot of times it's sort of with their guard up. It's, you know, they, they have a, a, an armor of secrets where they, you know, they can't let it slip, um, you know, because bad things could happen to them if people knew, who, if they live their authentic selves, if they live their true lives. And I think that's, that's tragic. You know, I, I think everybody should be able to, as long as it's not hurting somebody, you know, else, I mean, obviously the, the right to swing your arms ends at the tip of my nose, but if they're not hurting anybody, you should be able to live your life um, as, as authentically to yourself as possible. And um, I think that's a struggle that a lot of people deal with. A lot of people run up against the expectations of their society, of their families, of their religion, of their jobs, uh, of where they live versus who they really are deep inside. And I think that becomes a journey of self-actualization that sometimes it takes a whole lifetime for people to accomplish. Yeah. And uh, that's something that, uh, that, that really kind of speaks to Scout's Honor as a book. Um, and I think kind of gives it a soul beyond really the, the cool post-apocalyptic twist on the fun Boy Scout iconography. Okay, so I do have another question. Now you mentioned the toxic masculinity being yeah. represented in it and how that's got a forefront. Yeah. Will we see examples in the book of strong non-toxic masculinity maybe rising against it? Actually, yes. Um, you know, so, so I, I would say, you know, it's an interesting, um, it's an interesting world uh, of Scott's Honor. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's set 200 years after a nuclear war. Um, and so, you know, in the post-apocalyptic world, you know, having a cult built on survival skills, it, it, it's very useful, it becomes self-fulfilling. Um, you know, of course, you're going to need those skills in order to, to endure. You know, it, it becomes very binary at that point. It's sort of, you either become these sort of tough, rugged military figures, or it's oblivion. You, you don't survive. But um, Kit, you know, Kit kind of straddles that line because she's a true believer. She, she, she believes in the positive values of this cult, um, where she says, you know, we're looking to build a better world and we need people to fight for that. Um, you know, she has a little bit of her blinders on in, in, in a certain regard, um, you know, cause there is a degree of sort of creepy militarism to it. But the thing that I've really liked and, and, and he, he plays a role in our, in our first few issues is uh, Kit's dad. Uh, Kit's, Kit's dad, Glenn, is the only person that knows. Um, you know, how could he not, obviously, you know, living under, uh, living under a roof. And I find in a world that probably wouldn't have the vocabulary to talk about feminism, you know, it's so far removed and it's really a dark ages that is just founded now on, on a Boy Scout manual as sort of the foundation for the rest of society. He's the person who says, you know, I know it's dangerous for you to be doing this, both just being a scout in general, but also if you get caught, what will happen to you? And yet, he still supports her. Um, he's still like, you can be anything you want to be. And if that means that you got to hide, you know, you got to hide who you are in order to be a ranger scout, then do it. Um, he is the one who, who always insists to Kit that a scout's truest compass is their heart. Um, and I feel like he's surprisingly like kind of, kind of open for being a dad in a post-apocalyptic world. Um, but you know, it's it's what you're saying about you know masculinity. It's something that you could say the same thing about religion. For some people, it becomes religion becomes a, a source of strength. It's 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 something that grounds them. It's something that connects them to their ancestors, 
or you know throwing a penny in the well of the universe. It's it's something that can get you across the finish line when you've got nothing else left in the tank. On the other hand, uh, you, you don't have to look far to see there's been a lot of atrocious stuff done in the name of religion. And I think the, 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 the conversation about masculinity is something that we talk a lot about in Scout's Honor is, um, you know, you can, you can take those sort of stereotypically quote unquote masculine traits, anybody can have them, uh, even if your society tells you otherwise. Um, and so I think Kit is in a lot of ways a perfect antidote for navigating that kind of world, even if she doesn't know it yet. Um, I think she's somebody who can be open-minded when other evidence presents itself, even if it's disorienting. And that's going to be something that she deals with a lot in this book is she's going to make her discovery and then say, Ooh, did I see what I think I saw? There's a little bit of denial there. And that sort of becomes where her quest goes is, all right, I need confirmation in this. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, I can say, you know, just like, I don't think this is an anti, it's not an anti-man book. Um, it's certainly not an anti, it's an anti-cult book, but it's not an anti-religion book. Um, and so I think those, uh, distinguishing that I think is important to, 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 to reading this book. Um, but at the same time, you know, uh, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if there are a handful of trolls out there that, that can't make that distinction. Um, but I do feel like, uh, we work overtime to earn it. Um, and, and, and I think we do a really good job at weaving it in over the course of some pretty detailed world building. Okay. All right, well, that's pretty cool. Well, when I read it, I'll have to message you and let you know Please. on Please the first do. issue and kind of as I, as we go through the series and see, because that'll be interesting. Um, so we're going to wrap this up now sure. in the wrap up, of course, we want to let people know where they can send you money, where they can get stuff, where they can talk to you on social media, things like that, anything like that. Plug yourself, sir. Yeah. Uh, well, people can follow me on uh, Twitter and Instagram at Pepos D. It's my last name and first initial or David Pepos Comics on Facebook. They can also subscribe to my newsletter, Pep Talks at bit.ly slash pep news, uh, or they can visit my website at davidpepos.com. Um, currently my web store is being debugged, but if you want to buy any copies of my books directly from me, um, you can either, uh, DM me uh, or tweet me on Twitter, or you can go to the ozcomic.backerkit.com. Uh, we've got copies of everything except for, uh, the first issue of Scouts Honor up there. Um, and we'll, uh, if you want to buy anything from me, just reach out and we'll get you squared away. Okay. All right. Sounds good. Well, listen, David, it's been an honor and a privilege to talk with you. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I really appreciate to it. To be able to pick your brain on stuff and, and yeah. to hear more about your projects. And I, I hope nothing for the best for Scouts Honor and, yeah. and all the other stuff you've got going. And I know you're gonna you're gonna you, you you have a very interesting tenacity that I appreciate about you as far as like just you know, even saying stuff like, well, you know, come hell or high water, we're gonna get made. And so that's a tenacity that we need to see more in the world. Sure. You know. Thank um, you. I'm a strong believer in the idea of the only way we get what we want out of the world is to put out stuff that brings that to us. Right. So thank you. Yeah, uh, it, it, you know, it's a it's a hard job. It's a hard job to break into. Anybody who tells you otherwise is either lucky or lying. Um, but uh, I, I, I uh, it's the best job I've ever had, um, and uh, it's one that I'll never stop being grateful for. It's one that I'll never uh, stop trying to leave it all out in the field for. Um, I feel like uh, the, the only thing that I owe people is for me to tell 
my stories to the best of my abilities and to work with collaborators to the best of my abilities. And um, just seeing, you know, the, the way that people have responded to my work, it's, um, it's really heartening. It's really inspiring. And, uh, you know, you, you do this long enough, of course, you're going to come up with a bad book. It's just going to happen eventually, you know, statistics. But um, I'm going to write every book like it's my last. And uh, thanks to Thanks to seeing how, how much readers, uh, the army of readers and retailers and journalists that have supported my work, um, I'm going to go down swinging. Um, right. so, so thank you so much for having me. I, I really appreciate you taking the time. Not a problem at all. Listen, guys, you have just been a part of another fun-filled conversation about dot, dot, dot with me and David Pupos. And um, guys, go support him. Um, I'm telling you, he's got some good stuff out there. So go support him. I'm definitely going to be as well in my own way is you know getting things lined up and you guys do me a favor above all else be blessed and blessed on somebody guys take care